You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Marty Abadi. This is a WFHB local news for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News has special coverage on the 2022 Indiana primary election, which takes place today. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington City Council continues its discussion on raising the local income tax. That's coming up next in your daily headlines. On April 27th, the Bloomington City Council continued their discussion on raising the local income tax. Council member Kate, Kate Rosenbarger asked the mayor about how reducing the proposed local income tax rate would affect the budget, if it would affect the budget as a whole or eliminate funding for specific programs. The more we discuss this and the more questions that are answered, the more I'm on board with the original proposal. I think everything seems really justified and um, cutting cutting little bits of each doesn't make sense to me. But I want to ask if... Um, if cuts are being made, what makes more sense to the administration? Is it, you know, a line item? Is it uh, a percentage across the board? Because, I mean, the, the way it seems to me, like the East-West Express transit line, it's 1.75 million to get that to go. If we fund, you know, 1.6, do we have a do we have an express transit line? I don't know, right? And if we don't fund a 30-minute maximum frequency. We don't have a 30-minute maximum frequency. So um, I guess just, you know, I know this is a deliberation between all of us, but, but what makes the most sense to the administration? During public comment, Russ Skiba shared that he was against raising the local income tax. Skiba said that the community is too divided to make any decisions. I, I agree with your point, um, Councilmember Rosenbarger, that sometimes we can... We can nip and slice and, and, and try to trim a little bit and can sometimes cut into bone instead of or muscle instead of fat, right? We can, we can have implications in the program that none of us would want to see. I, I do feel we have been trying to work very hard to identify um, reductions. And you heard from uh, Mr. O Mr. Connell that the transit feels they can responsibly support with some of their funds, uh, th that gap. We asked them, can you can you give us some room? Um, I, there's cost to that, there's opportunity cost to that, but but we think it's responsible to do it. I, I do think um, from our perspective, um, you know, the, the, the difference between kind of where several of you are now and where I think the range, I think people have worked really hard to get pretty close to each other. Um, I believe uh, my view is that passing something close to that's quite important because if we don't do it, we're in a very bad position. We will work to do everything possible um, to, to make sure we can accomplish things now. But I would say, look, if $2 million of housing becomes $1 million of housing, 
there's dramatic difference in what we can do in housing, but that's, you know, judgments that y'all are going to have to have to make and share. Um, I do think uh, the, the latest discussions, and I know as, as folks are looking at some of these details, uh, the latest discussions do put us in a position where we can do a lot of good. Um, it's, you know, as I said, from again, it's not perfect from my perspective, uh, but I think it's, we're close. I do think some of the discussions about continuing to, spend down balances, uh, uh, further refinements do, do risk us moving into territory where we're, we won't be able to deliver what I think our, our folks need. But I think we're very close. I encourage you all to keep talking about it. And I appreciate the collaborative nature and the compromises that already have been taking place. I think they're helping us move it forward. Councilmember Jim Sims commented that though the council has a tough decision to make when so many people want different things, and shared what he would like to see funding for. I was surprised, like Mr. Dorfman, to see the item in the proposal to, quote, support missing housing types. I think his um, concerns that this reflects uh, an urge to build more um, duplexes uh, that are often called the missing middle, uh, and to subsidize the building of those is well-placed. It strikes me that when the plan commission and the city council granted developers the right to build duplexes in all the neighborhoods last year, that was in no way authorizing the city to provide financial support for that development. Nor, it seems to me, is that the purpose of city government to spend tax dollars that favors any one type of development over another, especially when the community is so clearly divided on the issue. In addition, I'm disturbed by the size and breadth of this proposal. Um, we do need money to support basic services and police and fire services. We need that money urgently. But many of the other line items appear to be insufficiently studied or considered. They may or may not be worthwhile investments, but with the striking lack of consensus in our community on so many issues these days in Bloomington, it seems unwise to simply open the community first for a variety of new initiatives without an opportunity for adequate consideration of the value of those proposals. And that is especially emphasized by some of the economic concerns that you're hearing. We should be very careful during this time about new taxes and only support those new taxes that are absolutely essential, especially when, as it appears in discussions tonight, it's really unclear whether we have the funds currently in the city budget to, to make the necessary upgrades that we need for the police and fire department. Given that situation, I don't think it would be responsible to move forward with a new tax when, in fact, we haven't even explored uh, uh, whether there are available funds. So I would urge the, the uh, city council to vote no on this tax proposal. Thank you. The council will vote on the local income tax at their next meeting on May 4th. At the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting on April 26th, the board heard from engineering public improvement manager Emily Herr about accepting East Short Street into the city's inventory. 
An MOU between Lorenwood Builders and the City of Bloomington Department of Public Works was approved on April 16, 2019 to connect East Short Street between South Maxwell Street and South Highland Avenue. The public improvements, including the paved road, crosswalks, sidewalks, curb ramps, detectable warning elements, signage, trees, and pavement markings were inspected and found to be acceptable by staff. The Board of Public Works approves the acceptance of public improvements, authorizing the release of the performance bond 30 days after final acceptance and the acceptance of the maintenance bond of $10,000. Staff recommends the acceptance of these public improvements associated with the Short Street Extension, release of the performance bond, and acceptance of the maintenance bond, which will remain in effect for two years after acceptance. And I'm happy to answer any questions. The board also approved a street closure request from the City of Bloomington Utilities for East Queensway and the intersection of South Montclair Avenue from April 27, 2022 until May 18, 2022. Engineering Field Specialist Paul Kerberg shared that the work will be done between 9 to 3 and said that the street will be open in the evenings. Board President Kayla Cox Deckard asked if arrangements have been made for the residents on the street to ensure they will have access to their driveways during that time. Kerberg said that he will make sure that Bloomington Utilities coordinates with them. The board approved their request unanimously. The next meeting will be held on May 10th. Indiana's primary election is today, Tuesday, May 3rd. The results of the 2022 primary determine the party nominees for the general election in November. Hours for polling places in Monroe County are 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., but if you are in line by 6 p.m., you will still have the opportunity to cast your ballot. Monroe County Election Supervisor Karen Wheeler says that she believes the primaries are more important than you think for both political parties in the United States. A lot of times people do discount the primaries thinking it isn't the election, but obviously it is an election that's very important to both parties. It's the Democrats that are getting their um, vote getters and the Republicans are also getting their people to be on the ballot. And then, of course, the fall is a little bit more of the heading off of those two. So it's maybe more exciting, but we have some, we at least have several that are rather interesting, like the sheriff. We have five candidates that are on the Democratic side who will come out on top. Um, we have a commissioner race that's <clears throat> being contested in, within the Democratic Party, and that also is of interest. But a lot of them are uncontested, so that does kind of lessen the drive. But I still like to encourage people, of course, to vote, because no matter what, your vote does count, especially in Monroe County. At around 12.30 p.m., Wheeler said the voter turnout has been slightly slow. However, she says the turnout looks somewhat similar to the last midterm primary. I did just look my numbers so far for people voting on Election Day is 7,378. Again, this is seemingly pretty close to the last midterm primary. We might be running a little bit behind that one. Of course, we never know until the end of the day. But our in-person was close, but a little behind that, 2018. And, you know, you can't compare it to 2020. Yeah. That was a crazy election. She provided essential information voters need to know for this year's primary election. 
if you're coming in to vote today, you definitely need to have your ID. And before today, it would have been good to make sure that you really are registered. And so those things, if you go to indianavoters.com, that's where you can find out a lot of information to make sure you are registered. You can change your address. You can see who's at which poll site, which poll site you uh, you would vote at, but it also tells you which precinct you're in, and what would be who would be on your ballot. So the IndianaVoters.com is a great resource. So with them coming in with their IDs, that's just need the knowledge of what they're going to do to vote. I also would encourage all voters that they are prepared when they come in. It isn't the time to research, and I have that happen. You can look at your phone. You can look up a person's name or whatever, but you are limited to a time span. It's probably surprisingly low. It is five minutes for each person to vote in the primary. It is three minutes in the general. And that actually got moved up this year. It was four minutes in 2020 and two minutes. So the state generously gave everybody one more minute to vote. And it is plenty of time to vote when you're in the voting booth, but it isn't if you're doing research. Wheeler talked about the importance of exercising your right to vote and what that means to her. Of course, in the position I am in, I think it's highly important for every person to vote. I just hate it when I hear someone say, well, my husband's a Democrat and I'm a Republican and it's just going to cancel each other out or however that's going to work. That isn't the issue at all. I think it's us being having the freedom to do that and taking advantage of that to not vote to me borders on being negligent. Of course, probably most people wouldn't think that way, but it's, it's really important and it really gets you involved and you may not know all the judges. You may not know all the people that are running for state representative, but you should, but if you don't, pick who you do know and work on that. And then every year, try every election, really, try to get better at it to understand our government. And, yeah, it's just, I want everybody to be out there and voting. It actually makes my job easier if I don't have as much, but I, it's just important to me. Tom Henderson has worked the polls at Benford Elementary for about a decade. He said voter turnout seemed low at around 1 p.m., but he said he hopes to see more voters before the polls close. The turnout is low, and uh, we kind of expected that. It's a combination of uh, ugly weather in the morning and uh, the immediate urgent issues people think may be satisfied in the fall poll rather than the primary. Henderson, who's a volunteer at WFHB Community Radio, gave his input on the importance of primary elections. Well, part of it is the the selection process about uh, finding the candidates within your party that you want to see on the ballot in the fall. For some people, it's only the ballot in the fall that really matters. But for those on the ground who are trying to make headway, uh, pledging themselves towards candidacy, you know, this is a real test for them. And uh, it shows uh, how they have voter appeal, how well they've been able to do campaigning, uh, the significance of funding and money in campaigning, but also uh, it's a denominator, it's it's a bellwether of are people happy with the current candidates too? The incumbents, are, are they going to last in the fall or maybe not? 
Prior to the election, Monroe County Election Central pushed out the message that more poll workers were needed. Henderson said that he was glad to see local people step up, but that he would like to see more people working the polls. I think it also speaks to the fact that uh, big news, you know, maybe more of the fall election than the primaries, unfortunately. And uh, this, of course, is also finals week for IU, so we lose some student energy. And uh, there are other factors that are playing into the fact that we just didn't get a huge amount of poll worker turnout. Henderson discussed why he believes a right to vote is essential for any democratic form of government. Oh, democracy fails when we don't vote. And uh, even though we, we may not have a strong opinion in one area or another, keeping the process alive for when that becomes important means that we're not living under an autocracy. And this is so very important to keep that idea alive, because as long as we believe in government, we have to have trust in it. And that trust comes from the skin in the game that we voted for. All in all, Henderson thanked voters for coming out and exercising their right to vote in the 2022 Indiana primary. There's a lot of dedication coming here today. It's not habituation. This is positive energy coming out to really deal with the future that we're going to all have to live in. And today there are a lot of happy people who have walked into the polls to try and participate in that future in a very active way as opposed to being led into the future by people that they didn't pick. Phil Salee voted at Binford Elementary earlier this afternoon. He said he was disappointed by the lack of candidates on the ballot. However, he said since he earned the right to vote upon entering adulthood, he never missed an election. Salee explained what voting means to him. Uh, Well, it's one of the few opportunities we have uh, to express ourselves. Another voter, Barbara McKinney, spoke about the importance of voting outside Fairview Elementary. McKinney says she doesn't believe voters should complain about politics unless they exercise their right to vote. It's really, I don't think you have a right to complain unless you vote. People need to be informed. They need to know what's important to them, and they need to um, show that by the way they vote. And if you don't do that, you need to shut up, I think. She says she has a longstanding interest in politics and that she's fascinated by the process. I've been interested in politics forever, and I just think it's always fascinating to see how things shape out and how trends change over time and trying to predict how, pe- how people are going to vote. And nobody really knows why anybody votes for anybody. I mean, they, they have these theories, but it's just such an individual decision, and then it leads to major changes at the federal level. It's kind of amazing. And you know, how people voted in 2016 may have taken away the right to choose yesterday, depending on what happens with the Supreme Court vote. And these things are really important. Again, the polls close at 6 p.m. tonight. So by the time of this broadcast, that window will be closing. However, if you are in line by 6 p.m., you can still cast your vote for the 2022 Indiana primary. To find your polling place, visit indianavoters.in.gov. Up next, we revisit a rundown of political races of local interest as heard during yesterday's local news. We turn to anchors Don Guerra and Cynthia Roberts for more.
Indiana House District 62 will be a race to watch during this election cycle. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Githens and outgoing Sheriff Brad Swain have announced their candidacy for the Democratic primary. They will face either David Hall or Greg Knott, candidates for the Republican primary, in the general election come November. The Democratic and Republican challengers will not face off against an incumbent, as former District 62 Representative Jeff Ellington announced last year that he will change his residency to Bloomfield in order to run for the House District 45 seat. According to the Indy Star, the recently passed redistricting maps show that the once reliably red House District 62 will now become more competitive. The new maps exclude Martin, Davies, and Greene counties while gaining Brown County, more of Monroe County, and parts of Jackson County. Another race of local interest, the Monroe County Sheriff's Race. Current Sheriff Brad Swain has served two terms in office, and by Indiana law, he is not permitted to run for another term. Five Democratic candidates have put their names in the hat for the primary, including Steve Hale, Ruben Marte, Angie Purdy, Joni Stalkup, and Troy Thomas. Nathaniel Williamson stands alone as the only Republican challenger. Whoever wins the primary will determine who will face off in the general election. Lastly, Monroe County residents can vote for who will be the party candidates for the 9th Congressional District. Three Democrats have announced their candidacy, while nine Republicans will face off after GOP incumbent Trey Hollingsworth said he would not seek re-election. To learn more about all the candidates in this year's primary, visit the League of Women Voters Voter Guide at 411.org org slash ballot. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Immigrants incarcerated at the Folkston Ice Processing Center launched a hunger strike after a protest was held in front of the prison on April 16th. There is currently a campaign against plans to drastically expand FIPC, which would make it the largest prison for immigrants in the country. In a press statement released by the campaign to shut down FIPC, campaign organizer Nat Villasana explained, quote, this hunger strike is being carried out to protest abuse human rights violations, excessive delays in legal proceedings, and retaliation that many are facing about speaking out about their conditions. The strike began on April 18th, after inmates were placed in solitary confinement for staying in the yard to chant and speak with outside protesters through the fences during the April 16th protest. Following this, the entire B4 unit refused to eat, kicking off the hunger strike. The immigrants who were placed in solitary confinement faced dehumanizing conditions. In the press release, Villasana explained, quote, We are told that while in isolation, they are only served one meal a day, spoiled milk is the only thing provided for breakfast, and they are only let out once a day for time to shower. 
Richard Wilgarose and Harold Mortis, incarcerated at the Fremont Correctional Facility in Kayon City, Colorado, filed a lawsuit alleging that the state of Colorado, Governor Jared Polis, and the State of Department of Corrections, or the DOC, violated a 2018 state constitutional amendment that extended its prohibition against slavery to prisoners. Before passage of Amendment A, which 66% of Colorado voters voted for, Colorado's constitution was one of over a dozen state constitutions in the U.S. with a ban on slavery for everyone except those incarcerated, like the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The prisoner's lawsuit alleges that Colorado has ignored the voters' wishes by coercing its prisoners to work against their will under the threat of punishment. DOC policy resulted in charging the prisoners with a Class II violation for refusing to do jobs the prison administration assigned to them in late 2020. Their punishment was a loss of earned time. Mortis, who is asthmatic, said he contracted COVID-19 while working in the prison kitchen and didn't want to become reinfected by returning to work there. Logaro said working in the kitchen during the pandemic exacerbated his post-traumatic stress disorder. The lawsuit contends that the punishment is excessive if a prisoner refuses to work because he or she fears contracting a disease or if the job aggravates a current mental or physical health problem. Morris and Logaros want no money damages, but an injunction preventing the DOC from enforcing its policy because of Amendment A. A former Alabama prison officer has been indicted on federal charges of assaulting three inmates and then submitting a false statement about the incident, prosecutors said Friday. Lorenzo Mills, who worked as a sergeant at Draper Prison in Elmore County, was charged in an indictment with violating the civil rights of the men by hitting them with a wooden baton in October 2020, according to court documents and a statement from the Justice Department. Mills, 55, was also accused later of falsely writing a statement that he hadn't used force against the inmates, who prosecutors said weren't resisting. Federal court records didn't include the name of a defense lawyer who could speak on behalf of Mills. Mills previously was charged with assault in state court over the alleged beatings. Two of the men suffered bruises on their backside, and one sustained a fractured arm, court records show. The Center for Constitutional Rights has announced that Mohammed al qatani held at Guantanamo Bay Prison, has finally been released. al qatani now in his 40s, was diagnosed with schizophrenia long before he was sent to Guantanamo, where he was tortured and held for 20 years. The abuse left him with post-traumatic stress disorder and intensified the hallucinations, suicidal thoughts, and depressive episodes that his pre-existing mental illness caused, making his transfer out of the prison urgent. Shayana Kadidal, senior managing attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, commented, quote, We are very hopeful that with proper treatment and his family nearby, Al-Qahtani will learn to manage his symptoms and salvage the remainder of his life, end quote. The center was the first organization to file a case on behalf of men imprisoned at Guantanamo. It had pledged to fight until all four of its remaining clients are released and the prison is shut down permanently. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, 
solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Marty Abadi. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 